Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Okay, guys, let's jump into some topics here. We've got some things lined up. And how do we select our main topics here on the John Campia Show? Well, it's really rather simple. You see, you guys come up with them. Anytime you come across a topic or a subject that you think should be a main topic here on the show, simply go anytime 24-7 over to www.thejohncampiashow.com slash contact. Once you guys get there, you're going to see a form. Fill it out with your topic or question. It's totally free. Hit submit, and then maybe, just maybe, you might see your submission featured as a main topic here on the John Campia Show. With that down, let's get into main topic number one, shall we? And our first main topic today gets submitted to us by Ashrafal Anam, who writes, Hey, John, my question is, what are your thoughts on streaming platforms adapting live-action versions of video games? HBO is adapting The Last of Us. Netflix is adapting Resident Evil and Assassin's Creed. And Amazon is adapting Fallout, live-action versions of video games. So far, have been most of them have been stinkers. Yes, they have. But can it be well-adapted in an episodic format? All right, thanks a lot for sending that in, man. And yeah, listen. The, we always joke about it, but it has been true in the history of video game adapted movies. There's been, I don't know, 30 of them, maybe more. There have been emerging three inescapable truths in life. Death, taxes, video game movies suck. I mean, that's just basically that. There have been a couple of very minor exceptions, minor exceptions. But we've all been waiting for this golden era of like comic book movies became the big thing, we've all been waiting for this new era of video game material being adapted into movies that become big things and big deals. Of course, we almost had it, or at least we thought we were going to have it, when we were heading into the age when Assassin's Creed and Warcraft were coming out. That didn't work out the way we wanted. But now we have this new era. There are more video game adaptations happening now. We've been talking about a bunch of them in the last couple of weeks, but primarily... There have been some big things coming to streaming. So the question becomes, can video game material find more success in streaming than it has before? I've, I've got a couple of thoughts on that. The, the main one that I have on this, Rob, is simply this, that like anything else, a video game adapted movie or series is just a premise. The real tough part isn't come isn't the premise the tough part is execution that's where everything falls apart you can have brilliant concept for a movie or tv show and it can totally suck you can have a ridiculously over simple concept for a show or movie and it can turn out to be the most brilliant thing it's all about execution there's nothing standing in the way of video game material from making excellent movies or tv series on streaming or anywhere else the streaming thing is intriguing, though, because while a lot of streaming, Rob, has struggled with movies they try to make, uh, streaming services have done a really good job with their series. There's just, there's just something about their ability to, to adapt series better than their ability to adapt movies. And so when you start with some of these games have some very good starting points, and then you combine those with streaming services that have a really good track record of developing whatever concept they have into really decent, watchable, entertaining, sometimes very engaging, you know, multi-part series on television or, you know, in your streaming device. It, it looks good. Like anything else, Rob, they, all these things they just mentioned could absolutely be terrible and absolutely suck. And after the Assassin's Creed Warcraft thing, I'm simply not going to hold my breath anymore. I'm just, I'll believe it when I see it, but I believe the chances are pretty good. We could get some really good material here. Rob, what's your thoughts on this? Look again, you know, John, it always comes down to, for me, characters and story. And one of the things that I think hampers a video game project from the get go 
is the story of a video game is designed to further gameplay. So all of the necessary machinations are to get you to the next level to keep you playing and to further that goal. Now, people fall in love with the stories in video games. Like, look, The Last of Us is as compelling yeah. as any movie. When I played Uncharted for the very first time, I had it day of release, the first Uncharted. I had never played a video game where I was so invested in the characters themselves, the the, the voice acting, the cinematics. I was I, I sat down and played that game from beginning to end. It probably took me 13 to 15, 14, 15 hours. I don't remember. I'd never done that before. And so if they can eventually capture, I mean, the, the thing is video game adaptations, you're not playing them. You're sitting back. It's like watching somebody play a video game for two and a half hours or two hours. <laughs> it has to be great. It has to be great. And I think it's possible, you know, but but they I think they find out that the narratives like, for instance, I would love to have seen an Assassin's Creed movie just set in the world of what Enzo was Enzo, the first character. Yeah, yeah. Where 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 you're just in that world. None of this jumping back and forth. I know it's just give me that and 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 make this period piece very evocative but they 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 just can't quite you know like when they made the doom movie they're like well we have to we have to incorporate the fact that it's a first person, first person shooter. shooter yeah oh and my it, god it's like and the house of the dead adaptation actually put in first person shooter video game footage into the movie and it's like what is this look I have faith, you know, some of the, like you've always pointed out the last Lara Croft movie, pretty good. Yeah. And, that's right. uh, I, I think that, uh, it's possible. It just takes a deft hand and like any other, like any other movie, you know, use the video game as a jumping off point. Yeah. Give us the characters and the milieu, the situation, the, the overall, like uncharted We're we're hunting for treasure in exotic lands, in the jungles, wherever. I get it. I'll get that it's uncharted, but now make it a movie. There's a we're, there's a reason why it's called an adaptation after all. Yeah, I, I look and I got to say I think the one that probably has me most excited right now is probably Last of Us. Uh, that's the one that's got my attention the most. Not just because I think it's probably the best pure story in any video game I've ever seen when you combine Last of Us 1 and Last of Us 2. But when you look at the people involved in it, Rob, like you've got people involved, you've got like people show running and running and producing this thing that were involved in Chernobyl, which was yep. remarkable that were involved in game of Thrones. That was, you got, so you got great pedigree already involved with this. They're obviously taking it seriously. And if that can become, I'm not saying it will, but if that can become the new standard, like I I've been feeling for a long time, Rob, all the video game, to movie or screen adaptations been waiting for is that one standard bearer to come out and say, this is what can be done. You know what I mean? And maybe that'll be this one. Maybe it'll be one of the other ones. Who knows? Question is guys, what do you think about this? Are you excited about the upcoming slate of video game adaptations coming to the streaming services? Do you think they stand a better chance of having some success there? Which one are you looking forward to the most? Jump down into the comment section below. And let me know your thoughts. Okay, guys. With that down, let's move on to main topic number two. And our second main topic today gets submitted to us by Gabe. And Gabe writes, John, hear me out on this tinfoil hat theory about who Patty Jenkins is writing her new Rogue Squadron movie with. It is my guess that Patty will be writing the movie with the great Aaron Sorkin. The reason that I say this is because of a video they did together on Variety's YouTube channel. If you ca if you watch through the video, they talk about wanting to work together on multiple occasions. Who else would she want to keep a secret for some grand announcement? Okay, thanks a lot for sending that in. And yes, where this is all coming from, this all stems from a statement that Patty Jenkins put out a little while ago. Now look, just go back to the beginning here for a second. We all know that Patty Jenkins is adapting and making a Rogue Squadron movie for Star Wars. We know it's going to be set in the future. We don't know how far into the future yet, but we know it's going to be set in the future sometime in the future. How far, how short, we don't know. And she's developing this and all this kind of stuff. Now, where this all comes from 
is that recently Patty Jenkins was talking about how she is writing the treatment and then going to be handing it over to another screenwriter. So she's writing the treatment for it and then it's hand being handed over to another screenwriter. So who's that screenwriter? Well, this is what she said. She said, I want him to have his own proper announcement. So in the fact that she's not revealing who the screenwriter is herself, I want him to have his own proper announcement. Uh, so I'm going to wait until that comes out, but we're very far into the, we're finishing the treatment basically, which is pretty big. So it ends up being like where you're fairly close to a screen. Well, a long screenplay by the time I'm done with the treatment is in my process. So yeah, we've been working on it for a while. It's going, it's going great. I'm super excited. That comes to us from Patty Jenkins. So what Patty Jenkins is developing a treatment that's going to be kind of like the outline. This is what basically happens in this movie. Then she's handing it over to a screenwriter to actually make it into a screenplay. What stand, what stood out to me when I first read this, Rob, was the fact that, okay, so clearly this screenwriter is somebody of note. For her to go out of her way to say, yeah, I'm not going to say who this screenwriter is. I'm going to let him announce it himself. To me, that's kind of implying that this is going to be a marquee name. This is going to be somebody whose name we recognize and whose name we know. I don't know that for sure, but that's what I'm taking from this. Somebody whose name we know and recognize because they seem to be making a pretty big deal out of this. What the person writing in is referring to is that, yeah, just a couple of weeks ago uh, on Variety's website and on their YouTube channel, Patty Jenkins and Aaron Sorkin decided to interview each other. And they had this little thing. And in this video they did together, they do reference a few times that wouldn't it be great to work together and all that sorts of thing. Now, it should be mentioned that Variety does several of these types of things. They have actors on actors where the actors interview each other. They've had other times when they've had directors interview directors or writers. It doesn't mean they got an upcoming project together per se, but... I honestly don't think it is all that tinfoil hat conspiracy theory theory-ish of you to suggest that, well, could one and one equal two in this situation? It doesn't always, but could it here? Clearly, it's going to be somebody big. And listen, it doesn't get too much bigger, Rob, than Aaron Sorkin. Aaron Sorkin has five Emmys on his mantle. He has an Academy Award on his mantle. He is a thrice-time nominated best screenplay writer for the academy awards and he's got one on his thing there he just did in my opinion the best movie of 2020 in trial of the chicago seven i mean and it seems like lucasfilm now is going after bigger and bigger talent listen i i'm not going to sit here and say that aaron sorkin is writing works i'm not ready to do that but it's one of the better theories i've heard that does have more circumstantial evidence surrounding it i'm willing to say rob i'm not going to be shocked if they announce that aaron sorkin's doing it. again i'm not saying he is i'm just saying it, the stars seem to be aligning it could be possible rob am i being way too hopeful about this number one do you think that he could be the writer on this project and number two what would you think of aaron sorkin writing a project like this Dude, I am a monstrously huge fan of Aaron Sorkin as a writer. And it has been my dream to see a marquee screenwriter, not a Kiva Goldsman, tackle um, this kind of material. Star Trek, Star Wars, having a, having a writer like Aaron Sorkin. What Aaron Sorkin would do is he knows he's writing a Star Wars movie, but what he would write is a great movie first. Mm. He would come up with a great story. Obviously, if they're working in tandem, I think, uh, you know, people always talk about, well, you know, Rob, uh, it's a Star Wars movie, but we don't want to see politics in it. I'm like, look, I love Tom Clancy political thrillers. I love when two warring sides, whether it's the Soviet Union and America, the Cold War and Hunt for Red October, if you are writing a movie about the First Order versus Rogue Squadron or whatever, you need that kind of gravitas added to it to give it that backdrop that a movie that essentially a war film needs. And if someone like Aaron Sorkin, I mean, think about it. The guy wrote The Social Network. He wrote Steve Jobs. He made um, 
uh, Molly, Molly's game. Oh, so good. I, I mean, can you imagine getting the caliber of storytelling that we saw in Molly's game or the social network brought into the Star Wars universe? That's what Star Wars has needed. It has needed an A-list writer. The kind of political intrigue that you got in the West Wing or even the heart that an American president had or a few mm. good men. You, can you imagine Star Wars if it had its you can't handle the truth moment? Imagine what that would do to elevate the storytelling of the franchise. That's what we need, dude. And if this is true, I tell you, I, I might take off all my clothes and dance on the 210 freeway and, and enjoy. <laughs> it would be because great. I'd, the- be, I'd be that excited, John, that excited. By the way, it's, you bring up an interesting point. A lot of times I hear some, some people say, like, you know, make sure like they they never like with an Aaron Sorkin who has written a lot of politically a political stuff with obviously <clears> West <throat> Wing, one of the greatest shows ever made. But a lot of people say, oh, I don't want any of that in, in Star Wars. Do you know anything about the original Star Wars? You do know that George Lucas wrote the original Star Wars like as one huge giant political allegory, right? Like you you do know that a lot of his stuff was totally politically motivated and referencing all the political stuff of his day. Like just go and read what George Lucas has to say about it. But that's not to say that's what they should go for. But yeah, listen, we've been hearing a lot of exciting stuff, but there is a difference between hearing exciting stuff and then seeing it actually come to fruition. Right. Cause so we've just yesterday, Rob, we talked about Kevin Feige, his Star Wars movie is moving forward. They brought on the Loki writer. That sounds great. Taika Waititi is doing a Star Wars movie. That all sounds great. Like we're there's a difference so between hearing great things and seeing it happen. So I would love it. I would love it, but I'm just not going to let myself get too excited till we actually, you know, see it happen. Question is, guys, what do you think about this possibility? Obviously, this is this is a high chance that this ain't going to happen. But what would you think of a writer like an Aaron Sorkin doing a Star Wars movie? Do you think that one one equals two? If not, do you think there's another ho- high profile filmmaker and writer that Patty Jenkins could be working with on this? What do you guys think? Jump down into the comments section below and let me know your thoughts. Okay, guys, with that down, let's move into main topic number three. And our third main topic today gets submitted to us by Walter Giddy. And Walter Giddy writes, Good morning, John. With the official news coming that WandaVision will be nine episodes, not the six that they said at one point, will be nine episodes, it got me wondering about episode length. The first report said that the show would be six episodes and six hours in total. Should we assume the six-hour total isn't true anymore? Would it be better to have more slash shorter episodes or less slash longer episodes, do you think? Either way, I'm excited about the show. What are your thoughts? Okay, thanks a lot for sending that in, Walter. I think this is an interesting little bit of conundrum here for us because we did get some pretty solid reports that saying that said that one division was going to be six episodes. Now that's a little short for me. I would like to see something a little bit more substantial than six episodes myself, but Hey, I'll take whatever we can get. That's all good. Also in those first, first reports, as they pointed out in the email, they said it was going to be basically six hours in total. I don't know. Now that we know that it is nine episodes, I don't know that there's any reason that we must believe at this point that it's still going to be six hours. I I mean, if it's not six episodes, I don't know that we have to believe it's going to be six hours. It could be longer than that. It could be shorter than that. We just don't know right now. But it does bring up an, an interesting theoretical question here. Let's say it is six hours, Rob. Let's let's say for the moment, let's assume that altogether this WandaVision season is going to be six hours in total. Okay. What then is the better thing for them to do? It's the better thing for them to have fewer episodes that are longer in length, or is it better for them to have more episodes that are shorter in length? I can only speak for myself, but I I myself have two points of view on that. My uh, the smart thing, Rob, I think for them to do is to have fewer episodes 
or so, is to have more episodes that are shorter. I think I think the smart thing for them to do is have more episodes that are shorter because you've spent a lot of money investing in creating this content. We've already talked about many times in the show the advantages of dropping series one episode a week as opposed to dropping it all at once. We know what the clear, uh, you know, you can't argue the, the irrefutable evidence that having one episode a week dropping is far more advantageous to the streaming service. If you can stretch out that that elongated buzz time, you know, instead of everybody buzzing about it one week, now you're buzzing about it five weeks, now six weeks, now nine weeks. If you got to shorten the episodes a little bit, maybe you do that as long as you're not shortening them too much. So that seems to be the smarter play, I think, for them to, to put out more episodes that are a bit shorter. My preference, though, is different. My preference is I would take the fewer episodes that are a little bit longer. Because I'm not going to lie, Rob, every time a new episode of Mandalorian would come on and I'd load it up, the first thing I did, my eyes went to look for the runtime. And whenever it was under 40 minutes, I was, oh, all right. And then, you know, play it and still love it anyway. But then when you'd load up and see 49 minutes, I get excited because I, I kind of right. like having the long one. So I can see both. I So I guess my thought is it's smart for them to go more episodes that are slightly shorter I would prefer to have maybe just a couple of less episodes that were longer. I see the arguments from both sides. Which way do you see this, Rob? Should they go shorter episodes, more episodes, longer episodes, fewer episodes? What do you think? Well, you know, if they adopt that, that sitcom style that they've been showing us in the trailers, sitcoms are, you know, half an hour long. And um, I think that, Again, it really depends on character and story for me always. But I think when they were making the show, they probably realized that, hey, you know, uh, because we're doing this sitcom thing, maybe we can avail ourselves of that format. And they realized they could break the show up into more episodes the same way. Like The Mandalorian has shown, like you said, John, I, I too – would get like when I would see a Mandalorian episode that was like 31 minutes long, I was like, oh man. But then <laughs> when the episode was so satisfying, it was like in and out and I, it was breathlessly paced. And I was like, wow, that was awesome. I realized it really didn't matter how long the episode was, it just mattered how good the episode was. And the final episode was really long, you know, more so than less, still less than an hour. But I mean, that was, I think, part of the fun of the show is as much as I'd like it to be longer. Uh, the enjoyment factor was high, you know, I really, I really enjoyed, I got to really enjoy those shorter, punchier Mando episodes. And if they've got that formula down for this, in addition to the fact that shorter episodes sort of accentuate what the premise of the show looks to be, I think it could be pretty cool. And we get three more episodes. What would you say right now? Okay. So let's say uh, uh, Bob Chapek gives you a call and says, okay, Rob, um, I don't play squash with him, though. So I no, it's only Iger. But Iger, you know, he's trying to give more responsibility to Chapek. Yeah. But it says, okay, what would you think, though, Rob, would be the minimum length an episode could be? Because, you know, like I said, we had shorter. I think we had one episode of Mandalorian this season. It was like only 31 minutes, I think. And it that it was still okay. It I mean that was fine. It didn't it didn't feel automatically like wait a minute. I feel like the show just started, and it, so it was fine. But for a show like WandaVision which is hard to say because we haven't even seen it yet. But what do you think? Uh, what? Where's that line that, hey, right here is okay, but one minute less is just too short. It's not worth the viewing time at that point. How how minimum length? How long should each episode be? Minimum. <clears throat> 22 minutes. You know, that's a sitcom. Really? Length. You'll go that length. short? Yeah, because, I mean, if you think about it without commercials, but since you don't have commercials, I do think that for a cable show that doesn't have commercials for a streaming show it's got to be 30 minutes i mean i think it really does you got to stick to because people think that well sitcoms are 30 minutes but yeah that was with commercials mm -hmm. but for streaming i feel like 30 minutes you know i would feel like okay that's 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 the length of the show is part of the premise of the show which is that they're trapped in sitcom world at least that's what it looks like to me maybe that's that's only what they've shown us to not spoil the rest. 
you know, but um, I would say 30 minutes probably I, would be I the minimum. I 100% agree. I think 30 minutes is that. Now, I'm not saying uh, they shouldn't have 45-minute, 49-minute, 51-minute right. episodes, but I agree because, like I said, going back to Mandalorian, they had one that was very, very close to the 30-minute line, and I felt like, okay, that, that was okay. I don't know that I'd want it much shorter than that. So I think you're right. I think 30 minutes is that sweet spot, and uh, I would go for that. So... I don't know, guys. Question for you is this. If you had the choice of, say, having, I don't know, nine 30-minute episodes or 12, or so let's say, uh, let me try it again, a nine 30-minute episodes or six, you know, 42-minute episodes, which one would you take? Do you like the formula of more episodes that are shorter or fewer episodes that are longer? I mean, they both have their advantages. They both have their disadvantages. I, I want both. I'm not going to lie. I want long episodes and I want 12 of them. That's what I want, but you can't always get what you want. What do you guys think? Jump down into the comment section below and let me know your thoughts. Okay, guys, with all that down and out of the way, we're now going to move on and start taking your live comments and questions. How do you get a live comment or question on the show? It's easy. Simply use the tip link that's in the description of this video. You can see it just near the top of the description of this video if you go down there, or you can enter it in manually at streamelements.com slash movieblogtv slash tip. Just fill it out. You'll get your question on if it's reasonable. But I also want to, I've been trying to remind you guys lately too, we see a lot of tip questions come in that are listed as anonymous. That's what happens when you forget to put in your name. You see near the top of the box there, you see the part that says your name. It's easy to overlook. But please make sure you put in a name there because if you send in a question for us to talk about that's fun and you support the channel at the same time, I want to make sure your name gets a shout out as a thank you. Unless, of course, you want to remain anonymous, which is perfectly fine too. All right, guys, let's get into it. We're going to start things off here with uh, Ididi from the city writes, I come to you as the trailer Kings for my problem. I don't know much about Dune, but friends are excited and thought the trailer would do its job and get me hyped. It didn't. Uh, is it just me with the trailer? Will this movie be Lord of the Rings level or John Carter level? Well, obviously Ididi, the last part we can't answer. We don't know. We'll have to wait and see. Obviously we hope for more Lord of the Rings level. Uh, although I really did like John Carter. It was just a terrible, terrible name. Rob, we talked about the trailer when it first came out. I, I don't think it, the trailer was fantastic, but it was a very early first look trailer. I don't put a lot of stock in a first look trailer. I think what they did with the first look trailer, Rob, was they very much, tar at least it felt to me like they were targeting the people who were already excited about Dune. And that that to me felt like a Dune trailer made for people who are familiar with Dune. Because if it seems to me, Rob, that the people most familiar with Dune are the ones who got most excited about that trailer. They will get to all the other stuff later. I have no doubt about that. So I thought it was fine for a first trailer. They wanted to get the energy level going for their existing base of fans. And that was fine. So I wouldn't be, number one, surprised that you didn't love the first one yourself. But I also wouldn't be too put off put by that because there's still a long way to go. Rob, how do you see that with the whole first Dune trailer? Well, I mean, I, I think you're right about that, you know, that that they were appealing to the people that know. And I, I mean, look, Dune is a is a pretty famous when I was growing up. I mean, I talked about it in high school. I, it was a science fiction book that I one of the first books I ever got from the sci fi book club when I was in elementary school. But it was a little beyond me then. But it's been around for since 1965, and anybody who's a science fiction fan growing up, I mean, not so much now because we have so much media, but they definitely were appealing to people that knew the book or even had seen the David Lynch film and understood the basic story. But I do think that um, as we move forward, we've only we've only we only have one trailer for it. Uh, I think we're going to get a much bigger trailer later on that 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 leans more toward the spectacle of it all and the world building of it all. And, um, and it'll probably be more appealing to people. I mean, I think the way people talk about Dune, it makes those people who are unfamiliar with Dune think it's going to be like the next star Wars. And it's really not, you know? And so if you don't know Dune and a lot of people don't know Dune, like, I mean, if you grew up over the last third, if you were born 
35 years ago, there's no reason why necessarily Dune would dominate your life unless you saw the Sci-Fi Channel miniseries or knew what it was. It's like a million other science fiction properties that that are out there. So, I, I you know, we're not going to get it now till October. Sigh. But I, uh, I think the next trailer is going to be something pretty that people are going to be like, wow. Yeah, it's it's going cool. it's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. It's Denis Villeneuve. Yeah. It's going to be awesome. All I right, mean, next it's my up. it's my most eagerly awaited film of yes, this year. Mine too. All right, John's it abandoned barber. Oh, yeah, now look how that turned out. John's abandoned barber writes. I've seen some Snyder fans doubt the news, saying, "Well, if the cut is a hit, they'll beg him to come back." Uh, but what would a hit even be? It's streaming. So how many subscriptions does it need? Any theatrical lease won't make a billion. Are they in denial? No, no, I, I don't think they're in denial. But I just think there's some foundational truths you have to look at and accept. Number one, this is not the first time they're working with Zack Snyder to make a DC property. They already know how Zack Snyder's DC properties look and feel like. And they already know how the audience responds and what level of success they can expect from it. It's not like this is the first time they're working with him. They've done several other films with him before. They know what the results are going to be. They know what the movie's going to be like. And guess what? They already know what this movie is. They already know what it is. You and I haven't seen it. You and I don't know what it is. But they're coming out and saying, this is it. This is a cul-de-sac. That was the quote they said. This is a cul-de-sac event. It's a dead-end street. They're just going to do this one thing and they're done. They said that having already seen it themselves. And they said that already knowing how the public responds to Zack Snyder DC movies. They already know. So, but Rob, it does raise an interesting question. What if this was a traditional theatrical release? Well, we know what they mean by success. Like we can simply look at the box office results. We can see what in a streaming world does that mean? Does it mean like Wonder Woman got them half a million subscribers over its weekend that it came out? Okay, you know they were disappointed by that. So what? Does it, is it going to take 5 million new subscriptions to HBO Max the weekend that they drop or they begin to drop uh, the miniseries, the Justice League miniseries? Uh, 10 million subscribers? I, I, I don't know. Basically, this is it. He's not coming back. The, we already know that half the audience and half the audience, uh, half the audience hates Zack Snyder's DC stuff. Half the audience loves it. Uh, the people on this show happen to be people that really like Zack Snyder's DC stuff, but most people aren't. That's not going to change. But Rob, what would that metric be? What What's Warner Brothers going to be looking at metric-wise to determine how successful was this uh, publicity stunt in doing the Zack Snyder Justice League miniseries? I think, you know, there's going to be two. Did they get so – first is going to be subscriptions. Did they see a bump in subscriptions when this went live? You know, that that's going to be a big telltale sign. And two, uh, did they see a rise in viewership uh, for this show and across their platform in general? Did did people tune in to HBO Max to watch the Snyder Cut and then continue and stay on HBO Max and watch other things? And I have to tell you, you know, I've been delving into HBO Max lately. I've really I, I just watched like The Undoing, which was that miniseries with Nicole Kidman. Oh, and Anne's been watching which, that. Aaron Aaron Cummings has been watching that too. She says it's really good. It is really good. I, I really liked it. Um it, it really handsomely made and uh it's beautifully done and everyone the acting was terrific in it. There's a there's a woman in there who plays a uh, defense attorney, a black actress and I don't know her name. She's British. Uh, the, for me, for me, the performance of the year on TV so far, man, did I love her. She's amazing. Um, but I, I think that that's what's going to tell uh, subscriptions and views like everything else. And, and, and do those views and subscriptions translate into like uh, so once people have watched it, they don't leave HBO Max. They stick around. So subscriptions that are going to not just for the month that airs, but but go on into m month two, three or four. I think it's going to take them, you know, six months to really understand the impact of it. But like HBO, John, regular HBO was always pretty good at like they had a big, big event series like Game of Thrones, a new season. And when it was over, they had locked and loaded something else that was not maybe equally as good, but equally as intriguing. So when one show ended, another show began. And if HBO Max 
I mean, they're not going to have another Snyder cut, but if they keep that kind of quality coming and at least you get 12 event series a year that are compelling, they could really have a good thing going because that's kind of what HBO would do. They'd suck you in and then they keep you there for the next show and then the show after that. So we'll see. I, I would say this in, in the Justice League miniseries defense, though, I don't think it's not there's nothing the Justice League miniseries can do to keep subscribers. That's HBO's responsibility. Like, well, that no, that is, but yeah, you've got to get them there first. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the thing. The only thing they they should be able to ask of this Justice League thing is, will you get people in the door? I if, if they come in the door and then immediately leave, that's not the Snyder Cut's fault. Like that. Like if if I ask, you know, it's like a club, right? It's like a club in Vegas, which Anna and I go to a bunch, right? You can have like the hottest girl in the world at the front door to try to get people to kind of going out, handing out club cards to get people to come to the club. But if they come in the club and then see that your club sucks and leaves, you don't blame your promo girl for that. That's your fault right. for the club. So it will be interesting to see how many new subscriptions they get. Uh, let's keep an eye on those metrics. All right, let's keep going here. Probably spent a little bit too much time on that. Uh, next up, we go uh, to an anonymous viewer who writes, Yo, John, I'm remaining anonymous on purpose. That's fine. Uh, just bought a 75-inch badass TV and a sound system. Recommendation for the most beautiful, epic thing to watch first thing, uh, learning Infinity War, a uh, leaning Infinity War, but maybe Lord of the Rings, something else. I'll tell you one that comes to mind for me. Uh, and Because this question has come up a little bit lately, Rob, about what's a good show uh, to watch on a new TV or good movie to watch on a, a good TV. I, I go, I, and I was saying Lord of the Rings because they've got those sweeping New Zealand shots and all that kind of stuff. Braveheart. Braveheart is gorgeous. So I, I will go Braveheart or Jet Li's movie Hero, which to me is the most, cinematography-wise, is the most beautiful film ever shot. Uh, the Jet Li's movie Hero is just, to me, the most breathtakingly beautiful wow. film I've ever seen. But Rob, which, which your go-to recommendation now when a person gets that new TV? What's the first movie you recommend to people to go and watch on it? Well, I, I would say I hope you have a 4K player. <laughs> but I think, I think one of the, I, I go to Blade Runner, Oh wow! Really? Yeah, I mean, Blade Runner. The way Blade Runner is something that just because the neons and the blacks are so rich, but then like you know, like what you you were saying, the um, uh, and I love the the lo visual effects, but that's it would be taste if you wanted to see something. Uh, I think the English Patient is an extraordinarily oh, yeah. beautiful film. I mean, it, it really depends what their taste is, but you know, like you said, Hero. Uh, or or Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon that Peter Powell shot. Uh, those are those are great movies. I would say that um, uh, Vim Vendor's Wings of Desire is both in uh, black and white and color, but Henri Alacan, who shot like Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast back in the what, 40s or 50s, is one of the most beautifully photographed movies. It really depends what people are looking for. But um, I would say go 4K. That new Lawrence of Arabia 4K disc, John. Wow. Like, wow. Amazing. Uh, uh, I Again, I just want to really encourage people. If you have not seen the Jet Li movie Hero, it's a very good movie. It's a it's a very so good, good movie. But I, I, you, I have never seen a movie where literally every frame, every scene has its own unique color palette. They do like they do this beautiful, like every scene has a primary color. And every frame of this movie is just a beautiful work of art. Every frame you could take a still and make and frame a piece of art and put it on your wall. It is absolutely gorgeous. So do check that out if you guys get a chance. All right. Thanks for writing that in anonymous. Uh, a silly goose writes, how about the end of Wonder Woman 84? Just kidding. Okay, thank you. We've had so much of that. Uh, this is me, Jedi, mind-tricking you into ranking Revenge of the Sith above Rise of Skywalker. Uh, just wanted to say I appreciate the wholesome, uh, the wholesomeness you contribute to the film fan community. Keep it up, big dog. Thank you so much, Silly Gustin. Yeah, I got a lot of people talking. I said this the other day, Rob, because everybody knows I, I really I don't like the prequels. The prequels have <laughs> things in them that I like. There are elements of the prequels that I enjoy. 
uh, Duel of the Fates, the Padre scene, various things, things that I really do enjoy. But overall, I really hate the prequels. And I've always said, you know, the the original trilogy as far as Star Wars is at the top. The prequels are at the bottom and everything else kind of comes in between. But I said on the show the other day, I, I may, when it's all said and done, I might actually put Rise of Skywalker below one of the prequel films, which would be Revenge of the Sith. And I, I've always thought the Revenge of the Sith is the least offensive of all the, the prequel movies, despite the, no, besides uh-huh. that, notwithstanding that, I, I, I'm not sure I'm ready to do it yet, but I just might end up putting The Rise of Skywalker below Revenge of the Sith. I'm not ready to do it yet. I just, I don't know if I can bring myself to do it, but I might. I might. Um, anyway, let's let's keep going. Thank you for writing that in, Silly Goose. I appreciate that, man. Next up, Ralphie's World writes, Hey, John, big fan. Thank you so much, Ralphie. Uh, have you heard or seen the new movie trailer for Run and Hide, Run, Hide, Fight? It's about a high school shooting and the main character has to survive. It's basically a high school version of Die Hard. It's co-stars Thomas Jane and uh, the as the lead's dad. I have heard of it. I have not. Wa- I've heard it's. I mean, listen, I've only heard a couple of little things. I haven't seen it myself. Uh, I haven't seen a trailer for it. I've heard it's quite bad. Uh, but I have not seen it myself. I just I just heard it was pretty bad. Rob, have you heard uh, anything about Run, Hide, Fight yet? No, but dude, uh, I did a story about it uh, because it was the first movie that was picked up by Ben Shapiro and The Daily Wire. Really? I, that show. I did yeah, not I, know. That I did not I know, know. I know he's a very divisive figure, and so this is not necessarily an endorsement of him or his politics, but the Daily Wire, the producers of the film are the same producers of Dragged Across Concrete, Bone I Tomahawk, did like that. I liked, and I Brawl in yeah. Cell Block 99. And so this film was a little incendiary. I mean, a terrorist attack on a school where a school gets shot up and teachers and students get killed. And run, hide, fight is the terminology they teach you if you're ever involved in an aft- active violent event, like a school shooting. I thought the trailer looked great. Um, even though it's probably going to piss a lot of people off. So yeah, the daily wire picked it up for North American distribution and Ben Shapiro is a guy that on his YouTube channel, he reviews the star Wars movies and he tried to get into entertainment. So I find it interesting that as a YouTube channel or an online venue, they've now become film distributors. And in a way, John, I see that as sort of the future. I talked about this on my channel. You've already done it. Where with movie trailers, a love story is your first foray into creating original feature length content, which is, I think, the future of what we're doing. I mean, movie punditry and talking is great, but you yourself made your own film and are self-distributing it, which is a huge deal moving forward and being a content creator. So first of all, kudos to you, sir. But I find it interesting that the Daily Wire did the same thing. They're acquiring a movie that the other studios and distributors wouldn't touch because of its incendiary nature. It's something that I've wanted to do. I mean, obviously, while I'm not distributing it myself, Tango Shalom, uh, our movie, is we're using social media and the platform. We're independent filmmakers to get the movie out there. So it's pretty fascinating the story behind run hide fight but regardless of that i thought the trailer looked kick ass i'm like man that looks kind of brutal and i'll i'll watch that shit come on all right next up we've got who was that that was ralphie's world next up uh if you don't answer this right uh you've seen the michelle pfeiffer led dangerous minds yes i have uh some students in the movie are from east palto uh palo uh, palo alto california and it was the murder capital but now serves as the silicon valley uh was there a time it was dangerous growing up for you no really wasn't i I mean i i don't want to just feed into pure stereotypes but i'm from canada i mean i am I'm, I'm from the rough streets of canada there's there's not much it's it's um i mean that look i'm not not to say that there aren't also seedier places in the entire country of canada of course there are but uh i i'd be lying to you if i said that i grew up in any sort of an environment that was anything close to some of the more dangerous places in new york or los angeles or or things like that so uh no again not trying to be over stereotypical but you know 
Worse the you know, the, the big day in Kansas when somebody bumps into you in the street and doesn't say sorry. I mean, that, that's that's the big headline news. So it is what it is. Uh, all right. Next up. We've got uh, King Artros of Monteval writes one of two. Uh, hey, John and Rob. I ran across an old article from Digital Spy. In the article, John Reese davies who was the star of the Fox show Sliders, said that, I mean, come on, you can't mention his name and say Sliders. You mention his name and you say Sala from Indiana Jones. Come on. Or from Lord of the Rings. Come on. Anyway, who is the star of the Fox show Sliders and said that the show was the biggest missed opportunity of his life. I have to agree. The show had a great concept. Um where they were traveling through parallel worlds trying to find their way home. There were a lot of directions the show could have gone, but they just dropped the ball. What TV show or movie do you think just dropped the ball and bring on the filthy? Well, I I never really watched Sliders, so I, I can't I can't really speak to that. I mean, I'm familiar with Sliders, so I don't know how badly it must have dropped the ball if we all know about it. But uh, again, I keep going back to that show Awake. I, I just, I keep talking about it and it's not that they dropped the ball in the content. They dropped the ball by not following up on it. They finished season one and I keep forgetting uh, something. Isaac's Isaac, something, the guy who was the captain of the, of the discovery, J- Jason, Isaac, Jason, Isaac, of course he's Jason Malfoy's Isaac. dad in, in Malfoy's dad in Harry Potter. It was a show that starred him. One of the most original, fantastic concepts for a show I'd ever seen. The season was wonderful. Uh, it was a great season, and season one ends with this big cliffhanger of him about to discover what's going on, and it ends there on a cliffhanger, and then they didn't do a season two. So for me, that is the big drop the ball. That might not be what you're referring to, but that's one to me. Rob, do you got a show that was that you consider to be a huge missed opportunity? That's not that doesn't have Star Trek in the name of it. <laughs> uh, you know, to be honest, I thought the last season of Lost was a oh huge- yeah audience betrayal i mean that show is bonkers and i really i really was with the show and i had really high hopes going into the final season and i think the final season undercut and betrayed everything about the show uh and i it, it was baffling to me and it was one of those things where i'm like huh you know and a lot of people talk about the the end of game of thrones but I think it wasn't even the end. To me, it was like the last three episodes kind of let me down. But that doesn't negate how great the rest of the show was. But Lost was something that really bummed me out. Yeah. I, yeah. I'll, you know, there were even parts about the last season of Lost that I was into. But it's just it's it's funny how we talk about this a lot, especially with television, how difficult it is to stick the landing. Like, I I have a very hard time naming 10 out of the hundreds of shows we've watched. I have a very difficult time coming up with 10 truly satisfying finales. Like, it's it's rare. Like, even one of the greatest shows of all time, Seinfeld, had a crappy ending. One show that a lot of people consider to probably be maybe the best show ever made in television, The Wire. Even the ending to the, the, the final bit of The Wire had trouble to me sticking the ending. Uh, a lot of people complain about the way that Sopranos ended. Uh, it's just, it's difficult to to stick that landing. It really is hard. Anyway, uh, let's keep moving here. Next up, uh, an anonymous viewer writes, I just want to say uh, is while we may have opposite opinions on politics and in no way, shape or form do I contone violence in the, what's happening. But the one thing I respect about you, uh, like, is that you try your best to talk about movies only. Uh, it's my private oasis away. Yeah. So obviously. Look, the the events that happened in the U.S. the other day uh, were very they, they shook me a lot. I'm not going to lie. It, it shook me. Me too. And. Um, I had, I had contemplated not even doing a show yesterday, but decided to do it. I had put up, I put up this big post about my thoughts on what was happening in the U S on my Facebook channel. And then I copied and pasted that into my YouTube channel on, on the, in the community tab. And after about an hour, I decided to remove it from the community tab on YouTube. And I just left a link to it on Facebook. If you want to go read my thoughts on that, but It was at the end of the day, I want this channel to be free of all that stuff because not only is this channel meant to be an oasis from all that other crap that's going on in the world, it's also meant to be that oasis for me personally. 
<laughs> like for me to get away from it too, for our audience that we can all come here and talk about movies together. But also I realized it's also for me uh, to give me a break from all that kind of stuff too. So we, it's not like we pretend that other stuff isn't happening. It's just that that's not what we're here to do on this channel. If you want to know my thoughts on the goings on in our world and stuff like that, you can follow me on my individual social media channels if you'd like. But uh, here on this show, we get away from that. And uh, we just talk about the movies and the things that we all love. Anyway, thanks a lot for writing that in. Next up, Ryan Loner writes, I have to admit, uh, if I was writing Hamilton, I would be sorely tempted to do a scene where Washington and Jefferson get in an argument until they realize both their wives are named Martha. <laughs> I mean, it's right there. <laughs> By the way, I, if you guys haven't seen... I get it. You probably saw Hamilton on Disney plus. And if you haven't, what are you waiting for? It's great. But honestly, nothing beats seeing it live. If you get a chance to see Hamilton live, you really do. You owe it to yourself to go. To, it's, it's a remarkable experience. It is my second favorite stage production of all time. Rob Les Mis is still number one for me, but Hamilton was really, really that good. And uh, you should go check it out when you get a chance. All right. Jeremy writes, Hey, John, I also wanted to thank you for leaving politics out of your show. It's so refreshing to tune in and hear movies being discussed without a political agenda shoved down your throat. Uh, your show is 99% upbeat and positive. It's very much appreciated. Well, thank you so much. And part of the thing that if it is upbeat and positive, uh, part of that is because of the community that's here. The community that's here is upbeat and positive. I mean, listen, when we got things that we think are crappy, we will crap on them. Absolutely. But for the most part, you know, Rob, we, we talked about it in that, uh, panel we did at comic-con a couple of years ago you know when, whenever people ask me about advice about doing youtube channels or blogs or posts what what i try to tell people is this of course there are going to be things you don't like and of course there needs to be things that are targets of your criticism but at the end of the day make sure you do your blog podcast youtube channel newsletter instagram page whatever so that people can look at it and you can be identified by what it is you love, not identified by what it is you hate. That's, that's my underlying advice to most content creators is complain where you need to complain, criticize where you need to criticize, but make sure at the end of the day, if somebody just stands back and looks at your YouTube channel, they can identify you by the things you love. Because I've seen too many podcasts and blogs and YouTube channels where you go to them and it's just hate peace, hate peace, hate peace. I hate this. I hate that. Let's hate this person. Let's hate that. and everything. And you become identified. I was like, Oh, that guy. Yeah. That's the guy who hates this. I, I hope at the end of the day, I'm known by, Oh yeah, it can't be. He's the guy who loves this. You know what I mean? I don't know what, what advice would you give people in that regard, Rob? Well, unless you're talking about Star Trek Discovery, where you can be hateful all you want, as far as I'm concerned. No, I'm kidding. I did. <laughs> no, I, I, I think one thing that I've learned, I mean, look, it, it was I learned from the best. I learned from you and I learned from John Schnepp about YouTube five years ago, man. It's in April. It's going to be my sixth year on YouTube. And it began with you and John Schnepp. Uh, on AMC Heroes. Doing AMC and Heroes, I, yep. And I would say I've I've often looked to you. I was on I moderated a panel with you, you your panel about uh how to start a YouTube channel. So I've always looked to you for advice and and how to do it. And I think you're absolutely correct in the sense that what sells on YouTube, well you're selling yourself. And and people tune in to see you. They want to connect with the personality on the other end of that that screen and the way people connect is if you can bring something that leaps through the screen that touches people in some way and you want to get them enthusiastic and excited and basically you want to put a smile on their soul john and if you can do that whether in my case if i'm talking about action figures or physical media or or movies and tv that i love I and you do the same thing. We're genuinely excited about it. We're not people know that when we wax rhapsodic about something, we're not faking it. We're not doing it just for views or clicks. We're doing it because we really love this stuff. And that's what people respond to. So when you when John says when I he's absolutely right. Uh, the more that you can bring a unique enthusiasm and your unique personality, whoever you are. Uh, and you can make it make it leap through that screen and 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 connect with other people. 
That's how you make a good YouTube channel. You know, there's a funny guy that has nothing to do with the movie punditry space called The Strad Man, who has a channel about cars, supercars. I know nothing about supercars. Nothing. I'm never going to probably own one. But I subscribe to The Strad Man because that dude always has a giant smile on his face. And when he buys his next new supercar, a Lamborghini, the way he talks about them, I know nothing about these cars. I just watch that kid because I aspire to own that, have that much money, but he just puts a smile on my face. If ever I'm bummed out or I watch 3D bot makers, 164th scale car races. <laughs> I mean, I love those channels because they make me happy. Isn't that great? It's just content that makes you happy. Okay, let's move on. Thanks a lot for that, Jeremy. Okay, next up, James Argenta writes, uh, do you think WandaVision will ret will retcon Wanda and say she was a mutant all along and the Mind Stone just enabled her dormant powers? This probably is not Feige's original plan, but he could use this to help him complete the hard task of introing the mutants into the MCU. No, I don't think so. I, I don't I just don't think listen, one of the brilliant things about Kevin Feige is he is proactive, he is not reactive. I mean that's that's just what Feige has been. That has been the hallmark of his stuff at the MCU. He is proactive. He very um, intentionally and very methodically crafts what he wants to craft. And he doesn't go, oh, that's hot right now. Let's change what I was going to do over here. Oh, that's unpopular right now. Let's change what I was going to do over here. He doesn't do that. You know, he had his plan. WandaVision was part of that five-year plan. I don't believe he's going to alter his plan. They will come. And by the way, this, the reality is, James, that, that that would actually create a lot of other story problems if you try to introduce the, the mutants that way. He'll come up with a way that they're going to introduce the X-Men in. Um, I still think the better thing is to just have X-Men in their own separate universe outside of the MCU, but that's just me. But he will find a way to do it, but I do not believe he is going to compromise his already existing plans in order to facilitate that. I, I just don't think that's what he's going to do. Rob, what do you think? Do you think there's a chance they could he could start leveraging these properties to to introduce, you know, X-Men and mutants and things like that into it? Uh, you know, honestly, I, I, I think that if they use the idea of, of what happened in, say, the House of M, which they could, I think it's kind of a cheat, to be honest, mm. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to see the idea of mutants be something that was brought on by some mystical reality warping event brought on by whether it's the multiverse of madness, unless, by the way, it's done really well. And it looks like there's a there's a trilogy happening here. There's WandaVision. There's um, the um, um uh, whatchamacallit, the Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, and there's the new Spider-Man film that yep. all deal with the multiverse. And the writer, by the way, uh, I don't know if you talked about this, but the writer, of course, of, of, um, of uh, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness was hired by Kevin Feige to write the new Star Wars movie. And the Loki, and, and he wrote producing. Loki. Yep, we talked about and this the, yesterday. The, and he's brought back for Loki. So these, this is a huge vote of confidence um, for that writer. And I think that there's, there's something going on here. That's going to be pretty interesting. So maybe they could tie it in, but I just think it would kind of be a cheat. All right, let's move on. Next up. We got, uh, Jared's reviews writes, Hey, John, spoiler warning for, well, we're beyond that for wonder woman 84, uh, Steve, uh, for Steve's outcome in wonder woman 84. Do you think they will bring him back for the third one? This has been a question that's come up a lot lately. To me, it felt like the creators focused too much on trying to get him back. They forgot to tell a good story around them. Uh, that's why I think his dialogue and scenes were the best thing about the movie, in my opinion. Also, how the movie ended felt like she was ready to move forward with her life. So I think if they brought him back, uh, it would be a step backwards for the development of Wonder Woman. Yeah, listen, Rob, that's that's been a big question lately. It's about do they bring him back for three and i have two answers to that from a narrative story point of view no they shouldn't bring him back you just brought him back you killed him in the first one you brought him back you killed him in the second one are you going to bring him back again so from a narrative point of view rob i would say no but from a practical point of view the reality is Chris Pine was the strongest point of both movies. He, he was the strongest part of both movies. And 
his interaction with Diana and their scenes together and their chemistry together, uh, those scenes were, were vital parts of those movies that, that were really at the heart of what worked. And so under normal circumstances, no, they should not bring him back again. But understanding what makes the Wonder Woman movies work, it might be something they need to consider. Rob, right now, I'm a total coin flip on whether they bring him back for part three. I think it's a 50-50 shot right now that they bring him back for three. Should they bring him back and will they bring him back? What do you think? I don't think they can bring him back again, especially if it takes place in the present day. Unless it's time travel or something, which I just... I, I, I mean, you know, to be honest... I think there's a – I understand Chris Pine and all that. I think there was a missed opportunity in the sense that I would love to have seen uh, characters, mortal human characters that Diana could have bounced off of throughout history. That, that, that part, of the, part of what Diana's journey into man's world would be was through these films learning about humanity through the relationships that she has. And I don't necessarily mean – romantic relationships, but the people that she interacts with. And one of the things I really loved about the first Wonder Woman was how she joined a team. You know, Steve Trevor had a team. Uh, and I, 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 I missed that about the movie. I liked the fact that, yeah, she's Wonder Woman and yeah, there was Steve Trevor, but she was interacting with a group to accomplish a goal. And, and I liked that interaction and I really missed that in Wonder Woman 84. I'd love to see that happen again. All right, uh, let's move on. Uh, next up, we have uh, Preston Walden. And Preston Walden writes, Hey, John and Robert, I uh, just wanted to plug my film, uh, Where the Land Meets the Sky, which just got international distribution today. Congratulations. And also congratulations on your film uh, getting distribution as well. I loved it. Well, thank you so much, man. Uh, Preston also writes, I got my girlfriend watching The Mandalorian and she binged it with me. Uh, she loved it so much. She uses This Is The Way and I have spoken in her class. Ha! Uh, now we are uh, binging The 100. Great show. Have you seen it? I have not. The 100, Rob, is one of those shows that I hear people bringing up every once in a while. But I have I have never seen it myself. It pops up on those networks. I can't even remember which network it is, but I can't remember if it's CW or not. But I've never watched the 100, but I've heard from a few people that's pretty good. Have you ever seen it? The 100? Yeah. I've seen a few episodes, but other than that, I've, I, I delved into it because William Shatner was tweeting about it at one point. So I, I started watching. It looks good. That's the kind of thing I would want to sit down and watch every episode of. All right. Let's move on here. Uh, next up, oh, that was Preston. Well, thanks for writing that in, Preston. Next up, Quiet Gone, Gun and Tonic writes, uh, Hey, John, what Star Wars books would you recommend that are in canon for a fan like me that's never read a novel uh, that delve into the high-slash-old Republic era and focuses on the Jedi-Sith rivalry? Example, uh, something that can prepare me for the Acolyte. Thanks. There's nothing. Uh, if, you want to, if you want stuff that gets you into the High Republic era, they just put out the first books. They've just put out the first books. And I am now uh, just getting into the first books. I downloaded the first one. I'm now about two hours into it. I downloaded the audio version of it. Uh, so I'm about two hours into it. So far, it's pretty good. They're setting up this, this thriller mystery. Uh, so far, a lot of people are dying in the first couple of chapters here. But so far, so good. I'm liking what I'm reading. But as far as stuff that is in canon and already in High Republic, there's nothing. The, the books that are in canon that I normally highly recommend are Lost Stars by Claudia Gray. It's fantastic. It's the best. In, for somebody who's never been into Star Wars books, Lost Stars by Claudia Gray is the perfect introduction into Star Wars books because... It first takes you through very familiar ground. It takes you through the um, the Star Wars trilogy that you already know. It takes you through that from a different perspective, and it's beautifully done and beautifully written, and it's a wonderful story. So check out, um, check that out. That that's absolutely fantastic. Lost Stars, Claudia Gray. The my favorite one though is called Lords of the Sith. And it's basically a standalone Emperor and Vader adventure. The Emperor, there's a larger story around it, but basically the Emperor and Vader crash land on a planet and they got to survive. And it's my favorite of the, of the book. So I would start with Claudia Gray's Lost Stars, 
then you can move on to uh, uh, Lords of the Sith. And uh, that's the way to go. All right, uh, let's move on here. Next up, we have... Oh, that was Qui-Gon. Next up is uh, Kung Fu Hot Dog Rights. Hey, John, in Wonder Woman 84, they ripped off Quantum Leap uh, so that when Chris Pine inhabits the body, handsome guy isn't dead, he's in limbo. If you add an extra 30 minutes to your documentary, I will tip you $20 when you can confirm that's a sure thing. Uh, Happy New Year, man. Well, listen, that's the thing. They never said that in the movie. They never said in the movie that, oh, the body of this guy I'm inhabiting is his spirit is now in limbo. They never said that. Like, really, as far as the movie was concerned, that guy, Scarf Guy, was dead. He was gone. He was gone. That body was now Steve Trevor's body, period, and was going to stay that way forever. Until, of course, Diana undid her wish, and that sort of changed everything. But, I mean, that's one thing you can guess, that his spirit went to limbo. I I just kind of believe he just kind of vanished from existence, and then once Steve left, it came back. It was a bad thing. Again, in Wonder Woman 84, when the president wishes for nukes, Nukes didn't have to take over teddy bears to be nukes. Nukes just appeared. When the they need a wall, you know, the wall didn't, you know, they didn't transform trucks into walls. The wall just appeared. There's no reason in this movie that Steve Trevor couldn't have just manifested in a new body. Period. So that was a really strange decision on their part. Very, very strange decision. All right, next up. Uh Connor uh Durwin writes. Um Hey, John, big fan of the show. Do you think they will adapt uh, Darth Talon as the hot as twin sons Red Sith Twi'lek from Legends, Lucas, and the sequels that we never saw for the Acolyte show? The show is said to have a female lead. I don't think so, but they could take design ideas from that. They could take design ideas for that, and uh, we'll have to see uh, where they go with that. Hey, guys, listen. Uh, we're going to cut today's sh- show short because, once again, I did reach out to YouTube yesterday. We- we're having some uh, streaming problems. YouTube is just not accepting the stream properly. I did c- connect with the YouTube rep yesterday. They said they are aware of an issue on some of their servers. I don't know what's going to happen with it. But we are s- experiencing some buffering issues right now, so people aren't seeing the stream properly. So we're going to wrap up today's show a little bit early. I will do a companion video later to get caught up on some of the live questions that got sent in. But uh, that's about it. Uh, Rob, I think, are you on a delay or can you hear me okay right now? Rob is clearly on a delay right now. So Rob can't hear me either. So I'm going to bring up Rob on screen. I, uh, I can hear you, but it's it, it's very it's delayed. Chatter, it's chattering, both yeah. our Skype stream and the stream on the, li- the yeah, live stream. Got a con- yeah, because I've got it all interconnected. So anyway, guys, that will we will get this sorted out. We will get this fixed for another show. Anyway, that will do it for me for now, guys. Thanks a lot for being here. My name is John Campia, and until next time, my friends, bye-bye. <laughs>